0: Org. Enjoy.
1: Hi, I'm Deanna Day, a writer and historian in Los Angeles, and I'm so happy to be here today to interview Rebecca Onion about her fantastic book, Innocent Experiments, Childhood and the Culture of Popular Science in the United States, published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. Rebecca, thank you so much for doing this with me.
0: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, To start, would you mind telling us briefly who you are and what the book's about?
0: Yeah, so I am, well, I have a a PhD in American Studies from UT Austin um, that I got in 2012. Uh, I'm defining myself in the academic terms, (laughs) reflexively, perhaps. Um, (laughs) But I am currently working as a journalist, so I'm a staff writer for Slate.com. So this is my, I guess you could call it dissertation book, although a lot of it changed in between the dissertation phase and the book phase. Sure. Um, Yeah. So the idea of the book um, was to look at to, to do sort of a cultural history of a fascination. Um, so Mm. I was interested in looking at adult investment in the idea that kids are natural scientists. Um, so this is sort of like a, a common little bit of ideology or a trope, maybe if I'm using that word correctly, which I always second guess myself, Um, (laughs) in American cultural history, starting probably in the early 20th century. Um, the idea that kids' natural way of being is scientific, um, that they're more observational, more experimental, more curious, um, and that somehow there is a fall from grace that happens as they grow up and they don't turn into scientists, quote unquote. Um, so the idea behind the book was to look at how this trope evolved over the century, over the 20th century, um, and how it was related to other concepts about what it meant to think scientifically and to be a scientific person.
1: Yeah, I love the way you articulated that just now, the cultural history of a fascination. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I didn't quite expect when I picked up the book was how much it was a not about what kids were doing, but about how adults thought about what kids were doing and how adults framed what kids were doing. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the most provocative uh, parts of, about your book is how, as you said, it denaturalizes certain ideas about what it means to be a good and smart kid.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, I was hoping to do that. So I'm glad you got that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Could you Um
1: actually th- say um, a little bit more about the sort of broader social effects of trying to naturalize that idea. Like, what are the stakes in trying to create this idea of kids as naturally curious, scientific creatures?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, in, I feel like at its heart, it's a beneficent impulse like it goes along with, um, you know, I mean, people in childhood studies are really familiar with this idea, but the idea incipient during the 19th century, and then sort of taking hold in the 20th century, that kids are kind of like, inherently good, or, or their, their thoughts are beautiful, or that there's something like innocent and precious about them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I have the word innocent in my book title. Um, and so, you know, in a way, it's kind of a great thing that rather than trying to Tamp down the kind of impulses that maybe previous generations would have seen as like, um, like rebellious or destructive or um, negative in some way. Um, I mean, i read a book while doing research for my book. Um, I think her name was Barbara Benedict, but she wrote a history of curiosity. Um, the idea of curiosity in the early modern period um, was what she was looking at. And she was talking about the evolution from the idea that curious people were kind of in some way a threat to the social order, or like disobedient, or um, sort of like a a, a big problem. Um, And the evolution between that idea and the idea that curiosity is like a trait to be preserved and cherished. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this 20th century concept that a child's natural curiosity is a good thing um, is, I mean, which, of course, as always, when you're talking about ideas, quote unquote, in the culture, like not everyone thought this, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) the people who are, um, you know, framing this idea are, have a certain set of other commitments, you know, like John Dewey has a lot to do with it and obviously progressive educators and all of that kind of um, set of people. So I, you know, obviously I'm not arguing that everyone thinks this way, (laughs) Um, but people who are promoting science in kids' lives are thinking this way. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways there's, uh, a lot positive to be said about that. Um, but I do I did find in doing some of the research for the book, which looked at different sites where um, kid science was being promoted over the decades, um, that there was sort of a, a way that this concept of precious experiment, precious, precious experimentalism <laughs> um, mm-hmm. kind of uh, would... Um, would get gendered and classed in various ways, um, so that in a lot of ways, I'll, even if it's not said explicitly, the kind of kid whose curious and sometimes destructive impulses was prized gets sort of uh, cast as a as a white boy. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the girls aren't necessarily, it's not as cute somehow. (laughs) Um, It's not not as, um, you know, it's not uh, as much latitude is not given necessarily for them to be participating in this. Um, And you can see that most acutely if you look at cultural objects like chemistry sets um, and, you know, uh, the way that the intel, I looked at the, um, well, that, back then it wasn't the Intel, the Westinghouse Science Talent Search um, um, yeah. kind of talked about their entrance um, and the people who won that contest year after year where the boys are sort of um, depicted as like red-blooded American boys with a lot of like get up and go who are often athletic as well as scientifically minded. And the girls are depicted as, you know, they also like to sew dresses or like they also like to host, <laughs> host teas for their friends. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, anyway, you know, there's a way that this idea of childishness, which is um, ramped up as positive in this century is also fundamentally tied with boyishness in a way that I found um, kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe I could say it was depressing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I agree. That was my experience kind of reading it. Um, I, I, still remember the phrase you you called the culture of experimentation you said it had like strenuous boyishness and I I feel like that is something <laughs> I really felt uh as a child myself and like mm. I didn't feel like I was good at playing science mm-hmm. um and uh I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about um your own experience with science oh, yeah. came to sure. the topic as an area of research
0: sure um well, yeah, I wasn't good at it either. And I remember, I, you know, I find it really intellectually interesting. And one of the reasons why I like studying childhood and why I think probably a lot of people who listen to this like studying childhood is that mm-hmm. it's such an interesting way to look at how cultural expectations get transmitted and transmuted and changed and messed with and, you know, like what people how what adults think you should be like um, comes through to your mind and changes the way that you are in various ways or sometimes doesn't change it, Totally, you know, yeah. Um, So I remember, I mean, I always really liked reading and I liked writing. And that was always my thing, um, perhaps unsurprisingly for a future academic in the humanities. (laughs) Um, But I do remember, you know, I, um, a couple of times did, Odyssey of the Mind, which is like this um, after-school program. I don't know if it's only in New Hampshire where I grew up that they had this, but um, maybe lots of places. is an enrichment program where they would have, um, you know, the teachers would have special projects that they would offer. And one of the ones that they offered once was uh, a mousetrap. Um, and it was basically like they would give you a paper bag full of random objects. Um, um, And you're supposed to take it home and make a mousetrap out of it. And I remember um, not only being really upset that I was failing at this project, because I was really used to succeeding at things like uh, a good, like gifted and talented nerd in my (laughs) elementary school years, um, but also specifically being upset that I was failing at it, because I, I knew that there was something about my attitude towards the mechanical or the scientific that was um, like, like that I should be more interested or like that I should, there should be some kind of um, like spark in me of curiosity about it that I didn't feel. Um, And I don't know where I got it. My parents aren't scientists. Like (laughs) they're not, (laughs) you know, I probably, you know, I think I, it probably came through children's books and through um, you know, the, the sort of, unspoken curriculum at school um the way that you know because for at least since the cold war and probably before i would argue like uh, american adults have been very like science cheater cheerleader to, to kids uh-huh. <laughs> like that you should like it like stem is great um you know that kind of uh, uh attitude towards it which weirdly also goes along with like not funding science departments enough, and not, um, mm-hmm. you know, being like, a, like actually trusting scientists, adult scientists when they talk. But that's a different aspect of this. <laughs> Although sometimes I think it's not a different aspect. I mean, I didn't cover this in the book, but I do feel like there are, uh, people have in a, in the United States, uh, like weird ideas about what science actually is. That in some ways I think come from being children, because most people have the most contact with um, science through elementary school and maybe high school, um,
1: uh-huh. and
0: so I don't know. Like I don't know if the way that we're being taught about science in elementary school and high school actually like translates to like the complicated and sometimes boring and sometimes inconclusive findings that actual scientists come up with. Wow, um, yeah. that's a different thing, possibly.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I definitely uh I'm sure that for you as for me um it was all of the same kind of mechanisms that you talk about in the book like I got dragged to a number of science museums I didn't want to go to yeah. enrolled in science fairs I didn't want to participate in uh-huh. um and part of that struggle I think was about this very question like what actually is the play that we're engaging in and what is the project and like what is the I always felt what is the point of yeah, the activity yeah. that I am doing? Um, and I think that speaks to exactly these tensions that you identify between um, like what science actually is and what we want science to be and all of the yeah. many uses to which like science can get put politically and economically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine that was a challenging thing to deal with.
0: Um, in writing the book? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, you know, in a way, I, you know, I know that in the field of science communication, there are people who would argue this. But in a way, I almost feel like I would have been better off if someone had been like, we're going to do history of science for 10-year-olds. Like, let me tell you the story of how they yeah. figured out that cockroach cockroaches cause asthma or whatever, you know, like that kind of, that kind of thing is like more... Um, Like vivid to me as a person with a more narrative bent in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, and I think some of the other, it it didn't happen with every chapter. So every chapter I looked at um, basically uh, like a phenomenon of science teaching or education or play that was new for the period. So I go through the 20th century chronologically and like in the early 20th century was when the first children's museums were founded. So I looked at children's museums then because that was where people were sort of saying, oh, we figured it out. We figured out how to have kids be interested in science. Like, this is it. Um, And then I did chemistry sets and then I did the science talent search and then I did um, young adult science fiction. So I kind of moved Mm -hmm. through it that way. And I didn't find it in every instance, but in at least a couple of instances, the people who were sort of spearheading these innovations would talk about the idea that maybe adults who encountered science through their children's interest in it would have their minds changed about science, um, hmm. which was some of the more interesting, um, I don't know, thoughts. I, I, it's Of course, like in the different case studies, it was easier to find the thoughts of in some of them it was easier to find the thoughts of the people who were spearheading it than other in others, as everybody knows, the archive is like not totally even. So like I really (laughs) would have loved to have, so AC Gilbert, who's the, um, the guy who had the Gilbert toy company, which, um, sold a lot of the chemistry sets in the interwar period. And then the, the cold war period, um, he had a lot of written material that was, um, like officially like used on the, in the ads and in the promotional materials for the chemistry sets. But he didn't mm-hmm. have, like what I would have loved would be like a diary of A.C. Gilbert. Like, but it was all, <laughs> sure. yeah, that was more sort of like nuanced or particular. Um, but then when I, I wrote about the Exploratorium, the San Francisco sort of science and art museum and Frank Oppenheimer, the guy who started the Exploratorium, had a little bit more, well, not personal stuff, but he just wrote a lot of different stuff. Um, and the UC Berkeley, the Cal has a big archive of Exploratorium stuff. So I was able to like kind of look at what he was thinking about. And he thought a lot about the idea that um, adults and children could both sort of access like a childlike mindset about science in a way through what he was doing. Um Mm. So at that time, the Exploratorium, is really different now, but at that time, the Exploratorium had free admission so that his idea was that you could go as many times as you wanted and that people should see it as like a public park, sort of, Um, so that you would be able to like wander through and then you'd be processing your whatever idea it was that you had that night in your bath or whatever. <laughs> and they would just be like, oh, I'll we'll just go back the next day. And now I think it's like $20 a person or something. So it's like not possible to do. Um, but that was his original idea. And his idea was that he would, that it would be sort of like childlike activities in some way, but that adults would also be interested so that the adults who are accompanying the children would also be able to access this like pure curiosity that he believed was still within all of us. Um, and then he saw it as sort of like an explicit counterweight to, um, was this like the late sixties, the seventies that he's talking about this. So, but an explicit counterweight to like a, a culture of incuriosity about science and technology that he felt was really bad for people. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so sort of like a, like a, he saw, he's thought people were very distrustful of science and technology in a way that they sh- didn't need to be, and that this would be like a way to connect them with the root of it. Um, but yeah, and I sort of wish that more people had been that particular about their like, like conceptual ideas about what they were doing, <laughs> but that didn't, uh-huh. I didn't, I didn't always <laughs> get that, obviously. <laughs>
1: yeah. So there's the problem yeah. of sourcing. Um, yes. But what always. were some of the other challenges that you faced writing the
0: book? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think the biggest challenge, again, I think this is something that people in childhood studies probably encounter um, pretty often. Uh, um, my biggest challenge is trying to speak to people outside of childhood studies about the historical importance of it. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that the problems that I encountered with that happened both within the Academy and outside the Academy. So the problem is that the archive is really cute and fun. <laughs> like it's really, it's really, I mean like some of the images, the the chapter about young adult science fiction, which a lot of it is about Robert Heinlein's um, post-war juvenile science fiction. Um, like it's really fun art. It's really cute pictures. Um, you know, the pictures of like, like the, The kids at the Intel Science Fair. I mean, no, I keep saying Intel, which is like pretty ridiculous because not only that, but Intel has actually dropped their sponsorship, so they don't deserve any credit. (laughs) (laughs) The Westinghouse Science Talent Search. So, um, yeah, like the like the pictures of the kids there. It's like really funny and cute and whatever. Like I don't know. And so the problem is that um, what I kept trying to make clear to people is that what I was interested in was. The very fact that they thought it was funny and cute was what interested me, um, uh-huh. and and it's not like like it's that is a hard concept I think yeah. to get across. And I have that problem a lot. Like now that I write for, um, you know, public consumption. I guess <laughs> not that the not that the academia is not the public. because It also is, in my opinion. But um, <laughs> you know, now that I write more for public consumption, and I I do write about children and childhood quite a bit. Um. I quite often have this problem where I, I, what I'm interested in is the fact that this stuff is happening in the culture. But when a lot of people read about children in childhood, they either read to be delighted or they read to like find a solution to things. So mm. I encountered a lot like either people being like, oh, this is so funny. I love reading about chemistry sets. Like, you know, my uncle like blew up his bedroom and. 1957 and we never let him <laughs> live it down or whatever, like a lot of stories like that. Um, or people asking, you know, what do you think we should do to get kids more interested in science? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, you know, um, that like prescription, which I know that a lot of historians broadly writ, have that problem, like that you you're asked to write the last chapter with like contemporary like, like you're supposed to pronounce on what the ideas are in your book that could like help people or change things um and and I know that I'm not the only one to have to like kind of bristle at having to do that <laughs> um because uh-huh. you're sort of like man I just told you all this stuff about how it was like why do I need to be the one to like write the paper on what to do differently or how to change things um but <laughs> but I mean you know whatever like not uh, I have mixed feelings about whether or not that should be part of the historian's job and part of me kind of thinks it should be and part of me thinks it shouldn't. But um, I think when you're writing the history of childhood, it becomes especially, especially difficult in some ways to, um, to get around people's delight and expectation about what you've written.
1: Yeah, I can see how that expectation would be a real, a real challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a needle you thread really well in the text of the book, because I, I found it um, that I oscillated back and forth from relating really well to my own <laughs> my own experience and having new, like a new way, a truly new way to contextualize what I had experienced as a child. And a way of, uh, I feel like it gave me some tools to think about my own relationship to science going forward. Um, I feel like your book didn't have to tell me what to do, but gave me some ways to think about what I will do. So I think it was a a big
0: success. (laughs) Hooray. Um, I love it.
1: Before we wrap up, uh, what uh, ideas do you have going forward for how you might continue thinking about these questions or where has, what direction has your work taken you?
0: Well, um, so I think in some ways that, that it's sort of the most elemental thing that I said at some point in this conversation about the interest in, the relationship between what adults want and what children grow up to be um, mm-hmm. because I don't uh, I don't have a good second book idea yet and I don't really know – I would need to be a trade book because I would need to get paid to write it. Um, I mean, I did get paid some to write it, but, you know, like I need to get paid more <laughs> than you get paid usually by an academic press. Um, and – and I did, I also had a child after I wrote this book. So, um, (laughs) so, you know, and she's two. And so I've spent the last couple of years, like reading a lot more parenting advice than I used to read. Um, and like thinking a lot more about, um, the relationship between adult expectations and children's lives. Um, and so I don't know, I think for a while I was thinking I might write a cultural history of the idea of attachment parenting. Um, I'm like a little scared to do that because people who (laughs) believe in it really believe in it. But the fact that they really believe in it is what's interesting to me once again. um, Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, wait, why do you think it's better to act like we live in a cave than to live now? Like that's fascinating. Um, I know. And I'm not saying anything about whether or not it's good or bad. Let's just say that I'm not an attachment parent. So I would sort of be like a little bit of an outside uh outside perspective on it. But um yeah, I had thought about that. And I'm still interested that before I left academia, I had thought that I might write a book about um the use of the figure of the child in predicting dark environmental futures. So like the idea Mm -hmm. of uh like talking about how to talk to children about bad things that might happen with the environment. And of course that's like happening now (laughs) horribly. (laughs) right now I'm working on a piece firstly about um how climate change is already changing childhood is the sort of like the piece the piece is like log line or whatever um so that might turn into something um but I'm not quite sure yet but it all sort of is the same idea just uh framed in different ways
1: (laughs) yeah well I hope everyone will check out that work as well as all of your other great work at slate as well as the book. Um, And thank you so much for chatting
0: with me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Shusai podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the society for the history of children and youth online. shcy.org.